In 2015, U.S. citizen Nohemi Gonzalez was killed in Paris, France, by one of several terrorist attacks that happened that day. The next day, ISIS claimed responsibility through a video posted on YouTube owned by Google. Gonzalez's father sued Facebook, Google, and Twitter, claiming that they were liable for aiding international terrorism by failing to take the actions necessary to prevent terrorists from using its services to promote violent acts of terrorism. When the case made its way before the Supreme Court, they were asked, one, does an internet platform knowingly provide substantial assistance under 18 U.S.C. section 2333 just because it allegedly could have taken more aggressive action to prevent such use? And two, may an internet platform whose services were not used in connection with this specific act of terrorism that injured the plaintiff still be liable for aiding and abetting under Section 2333? Let's find out what they said in the May 18, 2023 Unanimous Opinion of the Court in Twitter Inc. v. Tamina. Justice Thomas delivered the opinion for a unanimous court. Justice Jackson filed a concurring opinion. Under 18 U.S.C. Section 2333, United States nationals who have been injured by reason of an act of international terrorism may sue for damages. They are not limited to suing the individual terrorists or organizations that directly carried out the attack, however. That is because Section 2333d2 also imposes civil liability on any person who aids and abets by knowingly providing substantial assistance or who conspires with the person who committed such an act of international terrorism. Victims of terrorist acts, therefore, may seek to recover from those who aided and abetted the terrorist act that injured them. The plaintiffs, who are respondents, contend that they have stated a claim for relief under Section 2333d2. They were allegedly injured by a terrorist attack carried out by ISIS. But plaintiffs are not suing ISIS. Instead, they have brought suit against three of the largest social media companies in the world, Facebook, Twitter, who is petitioner, and Google, which owns YouTube for allegedly aiding and abetting ISIS. As plaintiffs allege, ISIS has used the defendant's social media platforms to recruit new terrorists and to raise funds for terrorism. Defendants allegedly knew that ISIS was using their platforms, but failed to stop it from doing so. Plaintiffs accordingly seek to hold Facebook, Twitter, and Google liable for the terrorist attack that allegedly injured them. We conclude, however, that plaintiffs' allegations are insufficient to establish that these defendants aided and abetted ISIS in carrying out the relevant attack. Part 1 Plaintiff's case arises from a 2007 terrorist attack on the Reyna nightclub in Istanbul, Turkey. The attack was carried out by Abdul Qadir Masharipov on behalf of the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, or ISIS. Born in Uzbekistan, Masharipov had received military training with al-Qaeda in Afghanistan 
in 2011 and eventually became affiliated with ISIS. In 2016, he was ordered by ISIS to travel to Turkey and launch an attack in Istanbul on New Year's Eve. After planning and coordinating the attack with ISIS Emir Abu Shuhada, Masharapov entered the Reina nightclub in the early hours of January 1st, 2017, and fired over 120 rounds into a crowd of more than 700 people. In total, Masharapov killed 39 people and injured 69 others. The next day, ISIS released a statement claiming responsibility for the attack. Two weeks later, Masharapov was arrested in Istanbul after hiding out in ISIS safe houses. One of Masharapov's victims was Naras Alasov, who was killed in the attack. Several members of Alasov's family then brought the present lawsuit under Section 2333, alleging that they had been injured by the attack. Invoking Section 2333-D2, plaintiffs sued three major social media companies, Facebook Inc., Google Inc., and Twitter Inc., claiming that they aided and abetted ISIS and thus were liable for the Reina nightclub attack. As is common knowledge, these three companies control three of the largest and most ubiquitous platforms on the Internet, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. At the time of the Reina attack, Facebook had over 2 billion active users each month. YouTube had over 1 billion, and Twitter had around 330 million. At least for Facebook and YouTube, those numbers are even higher today. Everyone before us today agrees on the basic aspects of these platforms' business models. People from around the world can sign up for the platforms and start posting content on them, free of charge and without much, if any, advanced screening by defendants. Once on the platforms, users can upload messages, videos, and other types of content, which others on the platform can then view, respond to, and share. As noted above, billions of people have done just that. As a result, the amount of content on defendants' platforms is staggering. It appears that for every minute of the day, approximately 500 hours of video are uploaded to YouTube. 510,000 comments are posted on Facebook, and 347,000 tweets are sent on Twitter. On YouTube alone, users collectively watch more than 1 billion hours of video every day. Defendants profit from this content largely by charging third parties to advertise on their platforms. Those advertisements are placed on or near the billions of videos, posts, comments, and tweets uploaded by the platform's users. To organize and present all those advertisements and pieces of content, defendants have developed recommendation algorithms that automatically match advertisements and content with each user. The algorithms generate those outputs based on a wide range of information about the user, the advertisement, and the content being viewed. So, for example, a person who watches cooking shows on YouTube is more likely to see cooking-based videos and advertisements for cookbooks, whereas someone who likes to watch professional lectures 
might see collegiate debates and advertisements for TED Talks. But not all of the content on defendants' platforms is so benign. As plaintiffs allege, ISIS and its adherents have used these platforms for years as tools for recruiting, fundraising, and spreading their propaganda. Like many others around the world, ISIS and its supporters opened accounts on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter, and uploaded videos and messages for others to see. Like most other content on those platforms, ISIS's videos and messages were then matched with other users based on those users' information and use history. And, like most other content, advertisements were displayed with ISIS's messages, posts, and videos based on information about the viewer and the content being viewed. Unlike most other content, however, ISIS's videos and messages celebrated terrorism and recruited new terrorists. For example, ISIS uploaded videos that fundraised for weapons of terror and that showed brutal executions of soldiers and civilians alike. And plaintiffs allege that these platforms have been crucial to ISIS's growth, allowing it to reach new audiences, gain new members, and spread its message of terror. Plaintiffs also allege that defendants have known that ISIS has used their platform for years, yet plaintiffs claim that defendants have failed to detect and remove a substantial number of ISIS-related accounts, posts, and videos. Accordingly, plaintiffs assert that defendants aided and abetted ISIS by knowingly allowing ISIS and its supporters to use their platforms and benefit from their recommendation algorithms, enabling ISIS to connect with the broader public, fundraise, and radicalize new recruits. And in the process, defendants allegedly have profited from the advertisements placed on ISIS's tweets, posts, and videos. Plaintiffs also provide a set of allegations specific to Google. According to plaintiffs, Google has established a system that shares revenue gained from certain advertisements on YouTube with users who posted the videos watched with the advertisement. As part of that system, Google allegedly reviews and approves certain videos before Google permits ads to accompany that video. Plaintiffs allege that Google has reviewed and approved at least some ISIS videos under that system, thereby sharing some amount of revenue with ISIS. The district court dismissed plaintiffs' complaint for failure to state a claim, but the Ninth Circuit reversed, finding that plaintiffs had plausibly alleged that defendants aided and abetted ISIS within the meaning of Section 2333D2 and thus could be held secondarily liable for the Reina nightclub attack. We granted certiorari to resolve whether plaintiffs have adequately stated such a claim under Section 2333D2. Part 2 Section 2333 was originally enacted as part of the Anti-Terrorism Act, ATA, in 1990. At that time, Congress authorized United States nationals or their estate, survivors, or heirs to 
to bring civil lawsuits when injured in their person, property, or business by reason of an act of international terrorism. In such a lawsuit, the plaintiff could recover treble damages and the cost of the suit, including attorney's fees. But the ATA did not explicitly impose liability on anyone who helped the terrorist carry out the attack or conspired with them. Prior to 2016, some courts accordingly determined that the ATA did not authorize that sort of secondary civil liability. Then, in 2016, Congress enacted the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act, or JASTA, to provide for a form of secondary civil liability. Thus, as the law now stands, those injured by an act of international terrorism can sue the relevant terrorist directly under Section 2333A, or they can sue anyone who aids and abets by knowingly providing substantial assistance or who conspires with the person who committed such an act of international terrorism under Section 2333D2. For such a secondary liability claim, there is an additional condition. The act of international terrorism must have been committed, planned, or authorized by an organization that had been designated as a foreign terrorist organization under 8 U.S.C. Section 1189 as of the date on which such act of international terrorism was committed, planned, or authorized. Plaintiffs seeking secondary liability can likewise recover trouble damages and the cost of the suit, including attorney's fees. The parties here do not dispute that the first three components of Section 2333D2 have been adequately alleged. The Reina nightclub attack was an act of international terrorism. The attack was committed, planned, or authorized by ISIS, and ISIS was designated as a foreign terrorist organization as of the date of the Reina nightclub attack. The central question is thus whether defendant's conduct constitutes aiding and abetting by knowingly providing substantial assistance such that they can be held liable for the Reina nightclub attack. Part 3 As always, we start with the text of Section 2333. Here, that text immediately begs two questions. First, what exactly does it mean to aid and abet? Second, what precisely must the defendant have aided and abetted? Section A. We turn first to the meaning of the phrase, aids and abets by knowingly providing substantial assistance. Nothing in the statute defines any of those critical terms. Yet, terms like aids and abets are familiar to the common law, which has long held aiders and abettors secondarily liable for the wrongful acts of others. We generally presume that such common law terms bring the old soil with them. In enacting JASTA, Congress provided additional context by pointing to Halberstam v. Welch as providing the proper legal framework for civil aiding and abetting and conspiracy liability. 
We thus begin with Halberstam's legal framework viewed in context of the common law tradition from which it arose. 1. Long regarded as a leading case on civil, aiding, and abetting, and conspiracy liability, Halberstam arose from a distinctive fact pattern. Bernard Welch was a serial burglar who had killed Michael Halberstam during a break-in. Halberstam's estate then sued Welch's live-in partner, Linda Hamilton, for aiding and abetting and conspiring with Welch. Hamilton was not present for Halberstam's murder or even allegedly aware of the murder, but the facts made clear that she was a willing partner in Welch's criminal activities. Hamilton had lived with Welch for five years, during which time the couple had risen from modest circumstances to possess a substantial fortune. This rapid ascent was remarkable because Welch had no outside employment. Rather, he left the house most evenings and returned with antiques, jewelry, and precious metals, some of which he melted down into gold and silver ingots by using a smelting furnace that he had installed in their garage. Meanwhile, Hamilton did bookkeeping for Welch's business, facilitating the sale of those stolen goods. She had Welch's customers make checks payable to her, falsified her tax returns at Welch's direction, and kept records of incoming payments from Welch's customers, with no records of outgoing funds to his suppliers. Their arrangement continued until Welch was arrested after he killed Halberstam while burglarizing Halberstam's home. To determine Hamilton's liability, the D.C. Circuit undertook an extensive survey of the common law, examining a series of state and federal cases. The restatement of torts and prominent treatises that discussed secondary liability in tort. With respect to aiding and abetting, the court synthesized the cases as resting on three main elements. First, the party whom the defendant aids must perform a wrongful act that causes an injury. Second, the defendant must be generally aware of his role as part of an overall illegal or tortious activity at the time that he provides the assistance. And third, the defendant must knowingly and substantially assist the principal violation. Halberstam then articulated six factors to help determine whether a defendant's assistance was substantial. Those factors are 1. The nature of the act assisted. 2. The amount of assistance provided. 3. Whether the defendant was present at the time of the principal tort. 4. The defendant's relation to the tortious actor. 5. The defendant's state of mind. and 6. The duration of the assistance given. Lastly, Halberstam clarified that those who aid and abet a tortious act may be liable not only for the act itself, but also for other reasonable foreseeable acts done in connection with it. Applying that framework, the D.C. Circuit held that Hamilton was liable for aiding and abetting Halberstam's murder. 
the court first determined that Welch had committed a wrong in killing Halberstam during the burglary, and that Hamilton was generally aware of her role in Welch's criminal enterprise. It then explained that Hamilton had given knowing and substantial assistance to Welch's activities by helping him turn his stolen goods into legitimate wealth, thereby intending to help Welch succeed by performing a function crucial to any thief. And it clarified that Hamilton knew Welch was committing some sort of personal property crime, the foreseeable risk of which was violence and killing. The court therefore concluded that Hamilton substantially helped Welch commit personal property crimes and was liable for Halberstam's death, which was a foreseeable result of such crimes. That articulation of the common law thus resolved Halberstam. But Halberstam recognized that the elements and factors it provided could be merged or articulated somewhat differently without affecting their basic thrust. It thus cautioned, in a typical common law fashion, that its formulations should not be accepted as immutable components. Rather, Halberstam suggested that its framework should be adapted as new cases test their usefulness in evaluating vicarious liability. 2. The allegations before us today are a far cry from the facts of Halberstam. Rather than dealing with a serial burglar and his live-in partner in crime, we are faced with international terrorist networks and world-spanning internet platforms. By Halberstam's own lights, its precise three-element and six-factor test thus may not be entirely adequate to resolve these new facts. And JOSTA itself points only to Halberstam's framework, not its facts or its exact phrasings and formulations, as the benchmark for aiding and abetting. We therefore must ascertain the basic thrust of Halberstam's elements and determine how to adapt its framework to the facts before us today. To do so, we turn to the common law of aiding and abetting, upon which Halberstam rested, and to which JOSTA's common law terminology points. As we have recognized, aiding and abetting is an ancient criminal law doctrine that has substantially influenced its analog in tort. In one early statement of the criminal law doctrine, William Blackstone explained that those who were present, aiding and abetting the fact to be done, or procured, counseled, or commanded another to commit a crime, were guilty and punishable. Over the years, many statutes and courts have offered variations on that basic rule. Yet, to this day, the basic view of culpability that animates the doctrine is straightforward. A person may be responsible for a crime he has not personally carried out if he helps another to complete its commission. Importantly, the concept of helping in the commission of a crime or a tort has never been boundless. That is because if it were, aiding and abetting liability would sweep in innocent bystanders as well as those who gave only tangential assistance. 
For example, assume that any assistance of any kind were sufficient to create liability. If that were the case, then anyone who passively watched a robbery could be said to commit aiding and abetting by failing to call the police. Yet our legal system generally does not impose liability for mere omissions, inactions, or nonfeasance, although inaction can be culpable in the face of some independent duty to act. The law does not impose a generalized duty to rescue. Moreover, both criminal and tort law typically sanction only wrongful conduct, bad acts, and misfeasance. Some level of blameworthiness is therefore ordinarily required. But again, if aiding and abetting liability were taken too far, then ordinary merchants could become liable for any misuse of their goods and services, no matter how attenuated their relationship with the wrongdoer. And those who merely deliver mail or transmit emails could be liable for the tortious messages contained therein. For these reasons, courts have long recognized the need to cabin aiding and abetting liability to cases of truly culpable conduct. They have cautioned, for example, that not all those present at the commission of a trespass are liable as principals merely because they make no opposition or manifest no disapprobation of the wrongful acts of another. Put another way, overly broad liability would allow for one person to be made a trespasser and even a felon against his or her consent, and by the mere rashness or precipitancy or overheated zeal of another. Moreover, unlike its close cousin, conspiracy, aiding and abetting does not require any agreement with the primary wrongdoer to commit wrongful acts, thus eliminating a significant limiting principle. To keep aiding and abetting liability grounded in culpable misconduct, criminal law thus requires that a defendant in some sort associate himself with the venture, that he participate in it as in something that he wishes to bring about, that he seek by his action to make it succeed before he could be held liable. In other words, the defendant has to take some affirmative act with the intent of facilitating the offense's commission. Such intentional participation can come in many forms, including abetting, inducing, encouraging, soliciting, or advising the commission of the offense, such as through words of encouragement or driving the getaway car. Regardless of the particulars, however, it is clear that some culpable conduct is needed. Similar principles and concerns have shaped aiding and abetting doctrine in tort law, with numerous cases directly employing them to help articulate the standard for tortious aiding and abetting. Similar to the criminal law rule, some cases have required that the defendant's assistance must have had a direct relation to the trespass and have been calculated and intended to produce it, to warrant liability for the resulting tort. Other cases have emphasized the need for some culpable conduct and some degree of knowledge that the defendant's actions are aiding the primary violator before holding the defendant secondarily liable. Still others have explained that culpability of some sort is necessary to justify punishment of a secondary actor, 
lest mostly passive actors like banks become liable for all of their customers' crimes by virtue of carrying out routine transactions. And others have suggested that inaction cannot create liability as an aider and abetter absent a duty to act. In articulating those limits, courts simultaneously began to crystallize the framework for aiding and abetting that Halberstam identified and applied. As in Halberstam, that framework generally required what the text of Section 2333-D2 demands, that the defendant have given knowing and substantial assistance to the primary tortfeasor. Notably, courts often viewed those twin requirements as working in tandem, with a lesser showing of one demanding a greater showing of the other. In other words, less substantial assistance required more scienter before a court could infer conscious and culpable assistance. And vice versa, if the assistance were direct and extraordinary, then a court might more readily infer conscious participation in the underlying tort. In moving back and forth between all these guideposts, the courts thus largely tracked the same distinctions drawn above to ensure that liability fell only on those who had abetted the underlying tort through conscious, culpable conduct. 3. Halberstam's framework reflected and distilled those common law principles. Indeed, Halberstam started with a survey of many earlier common law cases, including many of the same cases cited above. As part of that survey, Halberstam explicitly distinguished different types of aid along the same culpability axis that grounded the common law. For example, Halberstam recognized that giving verbal encouragement, such as yelling, kill him, could be substantial assistance, but that passively watching an assault after hearing an assailant threaten the victim likely would not be. Those same lines have long been drawn for aiding and abetting liability under the common law. And Halberstam's six factors for substantial assistance call for the same balancing that courts had undertaken previously between the nature and amount of assistance on one hand and the defendant's scienter on the other. Despite that deep-rooted common law basis, the Ninth Circuit appears to have understood Josta's approval of Halberstam's legal framework as requiring it to hew tightly to the precise formulations that Halberstam used. The parties before us similarly make a conscious effort to draw analogies to the facts of that case. But any approach that too rigidly focuses on Halberstam's facts or its exact phraseology risks missing the mark. Halberstam is by its own terms a common law case, and provided its elements and factors as a way to synthesize the common law approach to aiding and abetting. And Josta employs the common law terms aids and abets, pointing to Halberstam's common law framework as the primary guidepost for understanding the scope of Section 2333-D2. At bottom, both Josta and Halberstam's elements and factors 
rest on the same conceptual core that has animated aiding and abetting liability for centuries, that the defendant consciously and culpably participated in a wrongful act so as to help make it succeed. To be sure, nuances may establish daylight between the rules for aiding and abetting in criminal and tort law. We have described the doctrines as roughly similar, not identical. But we need not resolve the extent of those differences today. It is enough for our purposes to recognize the framework that Halberstam set forth and the basis on which it rests. The phrase aids and abets in section 2333d2, as elsewhere, refers to a conscious, voluntary, and culpable participation in another's wrongdoing. We've come to the end of the first half of this opinion, but don't worry, next episode we will pick up exactly where this episode left off. Until then, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us. See enter. 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 See enter.